our sermon today, we're going to go from verse 8 of chapter 9 into chapter 10, verse 4. So you can follow along as I read. Isaiah says, beginning in verse 8, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants, inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. And they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's help as we come to look at his word. Our God, we come to you and we ask you to give us the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord Jesus, the one who has risen from the dead, that you would send the Spirit upon us. The Spirit is the one who searches the deep things of God and reveals them to us, and we need spiritual insight, spiritual understanding. Our flesh uh, is at enmity with these things and does not want to understand the, the things of your word. And so we pray, that you would overcome the sinful flesh within us and our 
our minds that are fallen to help us understand what you have revealed uh, through the prophet Isaiah. May we know as we come to these words that it is you who are speaking. May you penetrate into the hearts of those who are hearing. And so we ask these things through Jesus Christ. Amen. Many of you probably love the hymn, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, and you know it has that question, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, this week, as I was reading and studying this passage, it was the tune of that hymn that kept coming to my mind, except I I would change the words. Changing the words to, what can take his wrath away. I know that doesn't quite work the same, but it's basically the same idea. What can take God's wrath away? Now we know the answer is nothing but the blood of Jesus, but we want to think about that question. What can take God's wrath away? God's wrath is not something that many people go around thinking about day to day, Our neighbors, people walking down the street around here, aren't thinking about how to answer that question. But it's what people need to think about. It's what we need to think about. What can take away God's wrath? And we look at this passage and we see that four times a refrain comes up. Isaiah's writing a poem, not exactly a hymn, but it's a poem. His prophecy is a poem with a refrain at the end of verse 12 and the end of verse 17 and verse 21 and then chapter 10, verse 4. You might have noticed this. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. For all of this. And so that brings up the question, well then, what will? What will take God's wrath away? We see three things in that phrase. This is not the sermon outline, but three things that we we realize from that phrase. Number one is that God is wrathful. God has anger towards sinners. That's something a lot of people want to deny, but you can't deny. God is wrathful. Number two, we see that some things don't turn away God's wrath. And so we want to know why. Why don't these turn away his wrath? And then we see, third, his hand is stretched out still. So when God's wrath is not turned away, he doesn't just turn around and say, well, I'm moving on with life. I'm just going to go about my other business. No, if God's wrath is turned away, he is still going to stretch out his hand. And we can conclude that he's going to do this until that wrath is turned away. So what does all this mean? This is what we want to think about as we come to this passage. Now I realize that mainly I'm preaching to a church, a church full of believers. uh, And believers know the answer to the question They have personally experienced God's wrath turn away against them. 
But for you as believers, this should lead you to have a greater love and appreciation for the work that God has done to take away God's wrath. But I may also be preaching to people, it's pretty likely that I'm preaching to people who don't know yet that God's wrath has been turned away from them. So what about you? Some of you who are here, maybe you're visiting us today. Maybe it's one of the young people who have grown up in our church. What about you? Do you know that God's wrath has been turned away from you? This is what we pray that God will help us to understand. So as we go through the sermon, I want to start with the exposition of the text, just overviewing what the text is saying. But focusing on that phrase that comes up, we're going to then second look at the doctrine. What is the doctrine that this passage, especially that one phrase, is teaching us? And then we're going to look at the application. So first, let's go through the passage and give an overview of the exposition of it. So notice first, verse 8, that this message of Isaiah is against the kingdom of Israel. He calls them Jacob or Israel, and later he refers to Ephraim and Manasseh. And so this is the northern kingdom. He's prophesying against the kingdom of the north. But remember that Isaiah is in the south. He's in the kingdom of Judah. He lives in Jerusalem. Now, part of why he's doing this is to remind us that God cares about the northern kingdom. And God has a plan even for the northern kingdom. They are the sons of Abraham. They're part of God's people. And so God's going to keep that covenant that he has made. And so sometimes we, we focus on David and the tribe of Judah And we think that's all that God cares about. But we remember that God still has a plan for the northern kingdom. But the other reason Isaiah is uh, preaching about them, but he's preaching to Judah, is basically he's using the north as an example for the south. Do you want to be like your brother? Look at your big brother up there in the north. Look at what he did and look at what happened to them. Look at their example. Don't be like your big brother in the north. So Isaiah is preaching to Judah about Israel. And then we'll see that going into chapter 10, he actually then starts to preach to the people of Judah themselves. He changes the pronouns in verse 3 of chapter 10. He starts talking about you, He's not talking about them up there, but you. What will you do now in light of what God's doing with them? So, since Isaiah's talking about the northern kingdom and he's talking about uh, the destruction of the north, most likely the events that he's referring to are the invasion of Assyria. Remember that Isaiah prophesied that in chapter 7. Before the child knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. Uh, those people you're afraid of, those firebrands in the north, they're going to be destroyed. So you shouldn't worry about them, but Ahaz worried about them anyways. And Isaiah's prophecy comes true. Assyria comes starting in 734 BC, 
to invade the northern kingdom in 722, it's completely wiped out. So as we read about the attacks and the enemies and the destruction, those are the physical, literal events that it's talking about. So it's in the north. Now, why is God's wrath coming on them? And how is it coming on them? Well, Isaiah gives us these four truths and these four stanzas. Number one, prideful oblivion. Prideful oblivion in verses 8 to 12. Let's read it again, starting in verse 9. All the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. There is a, apparently a, a real condition called Anton syndrome, and only 28 people have been known to have had this uh, syndrome. It is apparently a, a, something that happens in people's brains among those who are blind, where blind people truly believe that they can see things. And the way that it apparently works is that their brain creates these memories constantly. So that the instant before, uh, the, or the, the person has a, has a memory that the instant before they have seen a person in the room or they've seen some event taking place. And so they are absolutely sure that they can see and yet truly, literally, they are blind. And so you can imagine that that's not a very safe condition to have as you try to live your life and walk around and go places thinking that you're actually seeing things, but they're not actually there. Well, some people, very few people have that condition. But the people in the north have this spiritual problem where not only are they spiritually blind, but they think that they're not. They think that they understand things spiritually. And they think this way because of what Isaiah calls their pride in verse 9, and the arrogance of their hearts. So in their pride, they say this sort of proverb in verse 10. Bricks have fallen, but we'll build with stones. Sycamores have been cut down, but we'll build with cedars. So the Assyria has come and destroyed things. But you know what? That's a good thing. Because I always wanted granite in my house. I never wanted brick inside my house. So this is just an opportunity for me to install some granite. Oh, all our sycamores have been cut down by the army. But you know what? We can just get a cedar house now. Get some cedar panels. I like those better anyway. And so it's like the kind of sayings that we have. If life gives you lemon, just make lemonade. When God closes a door, he's opening a window. And so just look on the bright side. In fact, this is a good thing that's happening to you. That's what the people are saying. 
in their pride, they're not seeing that the wrath of God is coming against them. When they face these problems and afflictions and difficulties in life, they say, well, you know what? This is just to make me stronger. And, you know, this is what unbelievers are like. This is how they talk. When they face some sort of physical difficulty, their, their reaction is not, well, you know what? I need to consider the brevity of my life. I need to consider how my life is out of my control. And I need to think about what God says about my life. No, they say, look what I've overcome. Look how God has, uh, well, not God, look, look how I have been strong. I did this. And they actually take the, the physical afflictions that God might be using to draw them to himself, and they use it in their pride to boast about themselves, to get further away from God. So for the unbeliever, if you're here and maybe you're not following Christ, you need to understand that, that God might bring difficulties in your life. He might bring suffering. And these would be so that you would see that this is just a, a foretaste of a greater suffering. That you will face one day the wrath of God. And these pain signals are, are meant in this life to wake you up. That you might know how you can escape the wrath of God. Don't be pridefully oblivious. Well, then in the second stanza, we see that there's a leadership crisis. And God's judgment comes because of the leadership crisis. And also the crisis is because of God's judgment. So let's read 13 to 17 again. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So they don't repent. So verse 14, so the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So God cuts off the head and the tail. The head is represented by the elders, the leaders of the nation. And he calls the prophets the tail. Now the prophets are also leaders of the nation, but maybe Isaiah as a, as a prophet himself is trying to get a little dig in at the other false prophets because the tail is the thing that gets wagged. The tail uh, is, it's not, it's the dog who's supposed to wag the tail and the prophets are supposed to be the head. They're supposed to be wagging the tail in other words, they're supposed to be telling the nation where to go and what to do. But these false prophets are being wagged by the dog. The false prophets are, are getting their messages from the people themselves, preaching what the people 
want them to preach, what they want to hear. And so Isaiah says that because of this, because they're false prophets, they are going to be cut off. Well, he goes on to say that this is judgment. They are judged because of their uh, bad leadership. Verse 16, for those who guide this people have been leading them astray. So that's why they're being cut off. And he goes on to say that because of the lack of leadership, everyone is godless. Everyone does evil. Everyone speaks folly. And things are so bad that it says that God has no compassion on the fatherless and the widow. Think about how many times in the Old Testament God is described as the one who loves the fatherless and the widow. But not anymore. Not here in this part of the world. Because they're all evil. Things have gotten so bad that even the fatherless and the widow are part of the godless and doing evil. And so God has no compassion on them. He only has wrath for them. So there's a leadership crisis. Then third, it leads to anarchy. Anarchy in society in the third stanza, verses 18 to 21. I'll read it again. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thick thickets of the forest. They roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So verse 19, through the wrath of the Lord, scorching land. This is the nation of Assyria coming through, burning down the nation uh, like an army and also showing a picture of the, the wrath of God. So as Assyria comes through and destroys everything, it also says the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. And what this is saying is that the people are providing the fuel for more and more of the anarchy, more and more of the hatred. They're not sparing one another. So it's a cycle of violence. One person kills another person. And then because you killed my brother, I'm going to kill you. And then it goes on and on. Well, if you killed him, then I'm going to kill your brother. Right? And so it just perpetuates the cycle of violence. That's what it means when it says they're fuel for the fire. It's the fire of war and destruction. Not only is Assyria coming and burning the place down, but they're killing themselves. They're destroying themselves. It's civil war and it's anarchy. And then he uses in verse 20 a, a gruesome image of cannibalism. Slicing meat uh, is Manasseh and Ephraim. That's, that's the meat that's getting sliced. It's like killing your own brother. 
for meat. And then even eating your own arm, he says at the end of verse 20. So the cannibalism is to describe the the self-implosion of the kingdom, the self-destruction. Manasseh and Ephraim were the sons of Joseph, the two brothers, and they're killing and eating each other. And I don't think this is literally what's happening, but this is a a metaphor for what's happening in the kingdom, how they're tearing each other apart through violence. Uh, If you read 2 Kings 15, you can read about the kings of the north, and one after another, they the king gets assassinated. So uh, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. You, you assassinate the king to become king. Well, guess what? Somebody else is coming after you to kill you. And that's what happens over and over and over again. And they don't realize that they're brothers. They're all in the same kingdom and they're destroying each other. And then finally, in the last stanza, we have Judah's woe. So God's anger is still not turned away, he found after all this. But now Isaiah speaks to Judah. Verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they may make fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment? in the ruin that will come from afar. To whom will you flee for help? Where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So here in chapter 10, now this woe is a different sort of uh, prophecy. It's a lament. Isaiah's lamenting what's going to happen to Judah and what is happening already. Judah is going to be like their big brother. Destruction is going to come. Uh, It's going to come, as he says, widows are their spoil and the fatherless are the prey. Uh, You should remember those words, spoil and prey, from the name of Isaiah's child, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, prophesying that Assyria would come and quickly spoil the kingdom of Judah. But here, it's woe to you, Judah, because you're making widows spoil. You're making the fatherless prey. So they are maher shalal hashbazing themselves. It's not Assyria doing this, but they're doing it to themselves, and that's why Assyria is going to come do it to them. Woe to you for living this kind of life. So verse 3, what will you do? Like I said, the pronoun changes to address the people that are standing right in front of Isaiah. What are you going to do? If God's anger is still not turned away, and if you're living like this, where will you go to escape punishment? Try to hide. Try to run. Crouch among the prisoners. But that's not going to turn God's anger away. So that's the passage. That's Isaiah's prophecy. Let's think, second, 
about the doctrine. Are these words that Isaiah writes down 2,700 years ago just about something that's happening in a little part of the Middle East? What do these words have to tell us about God and what God is like? Well, I'll repeat the three things that we learned from that phrase of the refrain. This verse, this passage tells us that God has wrath, that not everything turns away his wrath, and that God will stretch out his hand until his wrath is turned away. And so those words, although they're not clearly, as clearly as we might want it to be, or directly stating this, those words are teaching us about the doctrine of what we call everlasting punishment. God's everlasting wrath poured out against sinners. The doctrine of everlasting punishment tells us that there is a place called hell where God unendingly pours out his wrath. Some people who may claim to be Christians, they want to somehow deny that doctrine. They want to somehow mitigate that teaching, there must be some other way that God is just and that God can love sinners. And so they've come up with all sorts of ways to try to explain away the doctrine of everlasting punishment. Some people would say, well, love wins. Love is going to win in the end. The love of God will overpower eventually the stubborn human heart. And so, yes, people might go to hell. And people might even go to hell for thousands and thousands and millions of years. But eventually, God's love is so strong and powerful that it will overcome the absolute hatred of that person for God. And God will eventually let them out of hell. And one day, everyone's going to be in heaven forever. Even if it takes millions and billions of years to get everyone there. I think those people uh, would probably still want to say that uh, the Hitlers in the world, uh, they, they might just stay there. Maybe for Hitler, he goes to hell forever, but everyone else pretty much, except for maybe a handful of people, will eventually get to heaven. Other people have come up with teachings about how uh, what they say the Bible is really saying is just that when you die, you just kind of poof out of existence. And so uh, people should become Christians because if you become a Christian, then you live forever in heaven. And if you're not a Christian, you just poof and you're gone. And so the outer darkness that Jesus talks about is really just non-existence. And so uh, they say, well, then that means God's wrath isn't going to be poured out forever. God's wrath is poured out upon you until you are destroyed, like someone, uh, you know, like a fire that just burns up a log, and then the log doesn't exist anymore. That's what's going to happen to the wicked. Well, those are things that people say, but that's not what the Bible teaches. And 
You can sympathize, I think, with the emotional pull to find some other way to explain the punishment of God, the wrath of God. It is a hard thing to understand and to accept that all sinners outside of Christ will perish for eternity in an everlasting torment of a place called hell. It's hard to stop and think about the people that you know and love and the people that we see all around us every day. We think about the people uh, who are outside today, who are in their homes today, doing many other things besides worshiping God because they have no desire for the spiritual things of God. And to think that so many of them will end up in everlasting torment. So you can see why people want to find alternatives. But we have to get our truth of doctrine from what the Word of God says and not our emotions and not how we feel about things. Ultimately, we must submit to what the Bible says. The Bible says that God's wrath is poured out everlastingly, forever, in a place called hell. To connect Isaiah's text to this doctrine, I want to look at Romans chapter 1. So you can turn there if you'd like uh, to Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 18. We'll just glance at some of these verses. But Romans 1, starting in verse 18, is very similar to what Isaiah is saying. Notice Verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So in verse 18, the wrath of God is a present tense. It is being worked out. And it goes on to explain the, the causes for the wrath of God. But then you have a verse 24 as a further explanation of the wrath of God being worked out. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Okay, so they suppress the truth. They reject God. Therefore, God gives them up to the lusts of their hearts. That is an expression of the wrath of God. And then it keeps going for another verse. And it says again in verse 26, For this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And it goes on to explain that. And then verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what, all, what ought not to be done. And it goes on to describe more and more of what they do. This is what Isaiah is saying in the passage that we're looking at. Isaiah says, because you rejected me, I'm bringing this judgment on earth, and my anger is still not turned away, so I bring more judgment, and part of this judgment is all the evil that you're doing to each other. The way you're treating the widow, 
The way you're slicing on the right and on the left, the way you're devouring each other. This is all the wrath of God. God's anger, his hand being outstretched against you. Yet, for all this, his anger is not turned away. And so you can read uh, Romans 1, 18 to 32. The wrath of God is to give you this thing in this life and more and more. And he gives you up more and more. But, is that it? Does that mean that there is no wrath of God after you die? Well, Paul answers that question. In Romans 2, verse 5, he says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. So, Paul gives us the answer that Isaiah is hinting towards. For all this, his anger is not turned away. Why? Because there is a day of wrath when God will righteously judge every single person according to his works. Verse 8, For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. You will face the wrath of God. So the reason we can say that Isaiah's words point us to the doctrine of everlasting punishment is because Isaiah is telling us that a temporal wrath of God, a wrath of God here on this earth is not enough to satisfy his wrath. Even death is not enough to satisfy the wrath of God. Death as a consequence for sin and yet even though we die we still face the day of wrath rendering to God according to our works. And so the the more that goes beyond wrath on this earth and beyond facing death is what the Bible calls hell or the lake of fire. In Revelation 20, verse 10, it says that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur with the beast and the false prophet. And it says, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever day and night forever and ever and then verse 15 of revelation 20 after the judgment if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire the same place where you there is torment day and night forever and ever. No, forever and ever until it's not, until love overcomes your stubbornness. No, you're thrown into the lake of fire and you just disintegrate. No, you're thrown into the lake of fire for everlasting punishment and torment. Why is it this way? 
Well, the only answer we can really give is that God is a just God. Genesis 18:25, Abraham says, "Shall not the judge of all the earth do right?" God must do what is right. Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Everything that God must do must be fully just. And so the only conclusion we could come to is if there is a place called hell, and there is, where there is everlasting torment, the reason that that exists is because the judge of all the earth says that this is the right thing. This is the only way for God to show his justice. God must demonstrate his wrath for eternity against sinners. And so there must be this place called hell. That's the doctrine. Well, now let's think about the application. What does this have to do then with us? One application for Christians. Paul says, Do not avenge yourselves, Romans 12, 19, but leave it to the wrath of God. As it is written, I will repay, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Christians, do you leave it to the wrath of God? When we don't, then we take a, an intellectual doctrine. I think everyone in our church, we would agree intellectually, we, we believe this doctrine. But in practice, we need to live out that doctrine by leaving things to the wrath of God. By not avenging ourselves. Now, not taking revenge is not just referring to uh, robbing someone's house when they rob yours or, or murdering someone because they murder someone that you know. You know. That's not really what it's only talking about. Think about all the ways that we deal with other people. Think about anger. Anger is always a feeling that someone has wronged me. And so my response is going to be to make them feel that they have wronged me and that I will pay them back. And so you might do that by lashing out at them. Lashing out is taking revenge. You wrong me, you hurt me, I hurt you. It could be anger that is cold, the cold shoulder, the, the death glare that you give to another person. You made me feel bad. You hurt me. So I am going to make sure that you feel some sort of hurt by ignoring you, by giving you a glare. Bitterness. Bitterness as you stew in your heart over how someone may have wronged you or how the world has wronged you. Bitterness is a, is a way that you don't leave it to the wrath of God. Because even though you might not ever, ever live it out, you're always thinking, you're always imagining all the ways that you can make a person pay. Gossip. What is gossip? Except that someone has done something wrong and I want to make them pay 
by letting everybody know what that person has done. I want everyone to know, I want other people to know that they did something that is worse than what I've done. It's just a form of taking justice into your own hands. Or jealousy. Anger is fierce, but who can stand before jealousy, Proverbs says. Jealousy is also something, somebody has something that I have, that, that I want, that I don't have. And so even if I may not ever be able to do anything about it, I'm just going to have this deep desire in my heart that what they have be taken away because they don't deserve it. So I want to take it away from them instead of leaving it to the wrath of God. If someone doesn't deserve something, God will deal with it. God can take care of it. So I know you're not going out getting revenge on all these horrible things that people do to you. But think about ways that you don't fully live out and believe deep down in your heart that God will make everything right. Leave it to God. God will repay. But then the next application that we need to think about is the question of chapter 10, verse 3. What will you do on the day of punishment? Do you know how to escape from the wrath of God that the Bible says is eternal and unavoidable and not able to be mitigated or, or lowered? There is nothing that we can do of ourselves to escape the wrath of God except to flee to a rescue. But you need to understand for yourself personally, the day of punishment, the day of judgment, the day when you will render to God according to your works, that day is coming for you. Which brings us to the last application. What will turn God's wrath away? Christians know the answer to that question. We want you to know the answer of Verse 3, what will you do on the day of punishment? You should go to the only Savior, the only refuge. That refrain, for all this his anger has not turned away, his hand is stretched out still, makes us ask the question, who then can be saved? How can the wrath of God actually be turned away? And you read Isaiah and these words that we've looked at, you think about the, all the destruction, all the devastation, all the wrath that they experienced. And you think, not even that. There must be something worse to turn away God's wrath. And so we know, as Christians, that the wrath of God is turned away only by Jesus Christ, by His work. It's Jesus who lived a perfect life. And then, at the end of his life, 
He gave it up to bear the wrath of God so that God's anger might be turned away. You read the Gospels. You read how Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, sweat what appeared to be drops of blood because he says his soul is very sorrowful and troubled unto death. And he asked for God to take away the cup of God's wrath that is against him. And God does not remove that cup. And so beginning in Gethsemane, Jesus begins to drink the cup. But then we could say that even then, for all that, at Gethsemane, God's anger is still not turned away. His hand is stretched out still against Jesus. Jesus experiences the betrayal of Judas, the arrest by the soldiers, the false trial and the denial of Peter and the scattering of the disciples. And yet, through all of that, God's anger is still not turned away. And then Jesus is mocked. He is beaten and scourged. He has a thorn placed upon his head. He is spat upon. And yet, for all of that suffering and torture, God's anger is not turned away. And his hand is still stretched out against Jesus. Jesus is taken to the hill of Golgotha. He's fixed to the cross and the nails are driven into his hands and his feet and the cross is hung up. And yet for all of this, God's anger is still not turned away. And God still has stretched out his hand against Jesus. When Jesus goes up on the cross, the sky turns dark. Jesus starts to bleed and die and suffocate. And he hangs there for one hour. And yet one hour on the cross is not enough. God's anger still is not turned away. God is still stretching out his hand against Jesus. So a second hour. More death. More bleeding. Suffocating. More of the cup of God's wrath being poured out. And yet still, God's anger is not turned away. And then after three hours, three hours of darkness, bleeding, dying, suffocating, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To say that he's experienced the full measure of the wrath of God, the full weight of what the eternity of hell would be like, to experience the curse of God in full. To be forsaken from the blessing and love of God. As the unbeliever will experience hell with God's presence there to pour out wrath, to pour out a curse, to feel forsaken of anything good and any love from God. Jesus experienced this after the three hours on the cross. He cries out with a loud cry, gives up his spirit, and he dies. And the sun is no longer dark. A veil gets torn in two. And it's as if God's hand that was pressed upon Jesus goes back. 
is put back in its place. And all of that anger, that wrath of God that was against sin, that was placed upon Jesus, Jesus takes it on himself. That anger is turned away. Turned away from the sinner, fully placed upon Jesus because of his death as a substitute. That's the only way. You need to go to Christ. All of us need to trust in Jesus Christ and rest upon his work and not anything that we might ever be able to do because nothing that you can do will be able to take the hand of God's wrath away from you except Christ. And Christians, this is what we praise God for, thank him for. For all this, his anger has not turned away, but for us, we can say that the blood of Jesus took God's wrath away for me. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your work of grace, this free gift. And Lord Jesus, for all that you did that we might have this gift of salvation. Please help us and forgive us for not grasping the depth of your grace towards us. Help us to grow more and more in love that your wrath has been turned away from us and you instead love us as your children. God, we pray for the work of your spirit that every one of us who is hearing your word today would find grace and rest upon Jesus Christ. May none of us face that everlasting punishment day and night, forever and ever, being cast into the lake of fire, receiving your judgment. And we pray, Lord, that you would do this great work of grace for all who are here and for many more. Add to your kingdom. We pray these things for your glory. In the name of Christ, amen.